Yeah, the impact of legalization of marijuana in Canada is probably going to have a growing impact on this podcast. <laughs> As Jessica turns her brain chemistry into a children's chemistry playset. Woo! <laughs> I'm Linuxing my own brain. It's going to be awesome. Jessica's cannabinoid receptors are like those little sponges that you put in water as a kid. Except instead of growing a dinosaur, she's just growing terrifying ideas. I'm going to be fully honest with you. Because I live in Vancouver, this has not been an entirely sober podcast for like about a year. (laughs) (laughs) The secret's out. (laughs) The secret's out. I've been on quite a lot quite a lot of medicinal marijuana basically since this last February. (laughs) Damn it, Jessica. (laughs) And the fact that none of you fuckers noticed the change I think proves what a weirdo I was to begin with. (laughs) Jessica's medical marijuana prescription has been like the special blend of herbs and spices for this podcast, except there is only one herb. Yeah, yeah, that that, that baggie isn't full of oregano. (laughs) (laughs) Jessica's been using the good shit for a long time, so... Wee. And it it's it has been about a year, yeah. We've been doing this podcast for longer than that, so it's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can go back, you can't tell the switch. <laughs> I mean It made no difference to my sense of humor. As someone who has known you for going on like six years now, uh it didn't make as much of a difference as you think. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're eating more solid foods, but uh, other than that... <laughs> I have a, I have an extremely strange reaction to it. Either that or, like, I never had any impulse control to begin with. <laughs> it's that one. I have seen you... It's, it's the second. I have seen you drink coffee creamer and fall into public fountains. So it's that one. I was hungry at a debate tournament a couple weekends ago, and I straight up ate pizza ends out of the garbage. I had a full-on <laughs> homeless moment mid-tournament. <laughs> I'm... I think you might just be homeless. <laughs> this is being recorded from a dumpster behind a 7-Eleven in downtown Vancouver. Yeah, apparently, like, the one tell I have is that I stammer less when I'm slightly high. We edit your stammering out anyway, so nobody can oh, tell Oh, yeah, the, the editing's been way easier recently. <laughs> you can't tell. I, I sound, like, 30% less like Porky Pig. <laughs> Well, now that we've given away the fact that the secret to this podcast is, in fact, drugs, um... (laughs) 50% drugs, 50% Janelle's deep morbid ennui. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I am Janelle. And we have another fantastic episode about child abuse. Everyone's child abuse. favorite topic. Yay! <laughs> hey kids, are you ready for some abuse? Boy, are we! And this is why you <laughs> oh, don't write geez. this is why you don't write children's television pilots. I mean, this is why no one has accepted my children's television pilots. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that does not mean they have not been written <laughs> you mean timmy goes to child protective custody isn't a big hit on nickelodeon i think it's an important subject that fil- that affects a lot of children's lives and sesame street should have the balls to admit that 
I have captured the subject. <laughs> they should have the fuzzy felt balls. These these goddamn liberal media won't show eight solid minutes of a child being beaten with a tire iron. <laughs> Bunch of snowflakes. <laughs> Call me Grover. I you know the truth. I need to shower. <laughs> <laughs> just having said that that sense. That's I just something has gone deeply wrong with your life. Just it wasn't supposed to go this way. That soundbite of me saying Eight solid minutes of a child being beaten with a tire iron is like reason 284 that I can never run for public office. I mean, if I was your campaign director, I'd make it the first four seconds of, of, of any of any ad you ran, just to get it out of the way. Just, I understand that my candidate is a dumpster fire who once said this into a live mic. I get that. I know. <laughs> you know what? We're gonna lean in. We're gonna lean in. <laughs> God damn it, we support beating children with tire irons. Or at the very least, it, it's, it should be open to discussion. <laughs> and at the end of every ad, it'll be like, paid for by the campaign for Janelle Como, <laughs> and also Canadian Tire. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well, that's that's charming. Um, glad we're crossing career options off the table for me every time we turn the mics on. <laughs> We're just working our way down the list. That's really what this podcast is. It's a project to get Janelle systemically barred from every industry. At this point, like, my master's degree is just in an arms race with this podcast. <laughs> For which one will, like, save you or ruin you first? Yeah, I, like, I had to go to a really expensive, really prestigious school, but also, I make a lot of jokes about child abuse and put them on the internet. It's just... It's, <laughs> The fucking space race with whether or not I'll have to live in my parents' basement. <laughs> Especially because, like, they're on basically the same topic, just with a very different tone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't need that connection to be made. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you say the words like, oh, yeah, I was researching this in class. Let's have some yucks, folks. <laughs> That's the subtext of this. It turns out they let just anybody get a master's degree in forensic psychology. They don't screen you or anything. Columbia can't be that hard to get into. Wow. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I got in on a clerical error, and that's becoming clearer by the day. By the second. So we're going to jump right into the topic because I have an absurd amount of notes left, and we're going to be hard-pressed to keep this under an hour and a half. Uh, so buckle in. Oh, boy. <laughs> I haven't seen these notes in about a month, and it has- what a month it has been. What a month. What a month. I'm going on this ride with the rest of you. <laughs> so where we left off, we were talking about um, the fact that Jeannie's entire staff were invited to watch a screening of a new movie about another famous wild child whose life parallels Jeannie's in many ways, and that is the, the case of Victor of Averion, which I can only assume I'm pronouncing incorrectly. Oh, unbelievably badly. Thank you. But do go It on. means a lot coming from you. Uh, it's pronounced Wicto? There's not a chance that that's true. Yeah, absolutely not. 
I mean, I've I've seen your Duolingo scores. They're um, inhuman, but I'm I'm not gonna believe they're it. a cry for help. They are a cry for help. Like, there's a certain point where like du- high Duolingo score is impressive. I lapped that <laughs> ten times ago. Oh, you've gone you've gone full circle. This is now this is now concerning. This is now life ruining. Actually, I don't remember what it is. It's sixty two thousand. Oh, sixty two thousand. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not fine. It's you, it's not it's not fine. When I look it's at your so Duolingo score, I don't see a polyglot. I see a person consumed by obsession. Like someone should stop me. Someone should intercede. <laughs> and 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 yet, child protective services has yet to come to save me from myself. The, your parents have done their bit. They got you to adulthood. <laughs> You're on your own from mm. here on. <laughs> fly, fledgling, fly. <laughs> Vole. Awesome. So it's hard to tell Jeannie's story without getting into the story of Victor Vivarion, which is the pronunciation we're going to use from here on out. Sorry, France. I guess. Um, Vicky. It's not Victor I'm struggling with. It's a very (laughs) (laughs) I'm well aware how Victor is pronounced. (laughs) With a V. With a V. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica, and her many special brownies. <laughs> Technically, it's orange-flavored tincture. <laughs> because even when you are consuming illicit substances, you are a massive child. I don't like the taste. <laughs> nor the smell. Oh, man, I live in a, a shitty apartment in East Harlem, so I get the smell no matter what. It's like living in a fucking humidifier. Humidifiers filled with suspicious oregano. I'm sure my dog has been high continuously since June. <laughs> She's so small. <laughs> she can't handle these dosages. <laughs> Just wafting it towards her is probably doing a number on her tiny, very fragile brain. She barked so hard at my roommate, who has lived here the entire time that she's lived here. She barked so hard at her that she fell straight off the couch, and I'm starting to worry. (laughs) Yeah, Victor is very much the predecessor of Jeannie in a lot of ways, and his life had a profound impact on hers, even though they lived in very different centuries and very different continents. So on January 8th in the year 1800, a young boy emerged from the woods near- I'm about to hurt Jessica on the inside- saint cernan serence in southern France. I literally have no idea what you said. saint cernan serence if you want it anglicized. Oh. Oh, no. Yeah, hurt you on the inside. Say it, say it the wrong way more. There have been sightings of this boy in the area since 1794, and at one point in 1797, he was actually captured by a group of three hunters who put him in the care of a local widow, but he managed to escape the widow and went right back to the wilderness. Because, fuck pants, I guess. So the villagers estimated Victor's age at around 12 when he finally emerged of his own accord in the year 1800. Let my buttocks be free. I just air those balls. I just like to feel the wind between my testes. <laughs> I'm not sure that's how male anatomy works, but I don't want you to have a better <laughs> I just like to feel that. the flutter in the breeze. <laughs> I don't, I've never seen any that I would describe as fluttering, but again... <laughs> I don't want you to have like, first hand. Like knowledge. the American flag, just noble and strong. Oh my god. <laughs> no. You know, they they really snap on a on a on a windy day. I don't even have balls. I've just seen scrotums and I I'm <laughs> as as someone who has never seen a scrotum, nor, if you remember last week, 
had the uh, sensory experience to integrate how a scrotum feels and or looks like. Uh, I have no idea. I mean, uh, maybe the, maybe they flap in the wind. Who knows? This entire conversation makes me want to take off all my skin with a belt sander. Um, <laughs> your punishment should be to look at a scrotum. <laughs> and think about what you just did. I, I, I don't have my scrotum handler's license yet, so uh, that's going to have to wait. <laughs> Licensing is always a bitch here in Canada. Overregulation. I could make a joke, but it would only make my mom sad. <laughs> Victor was prepubescent when he emerged from the woods, but he began puberty within a year or two, so they think 12? It's kind of hard to say what his true age was, because the best technique they had at the time for estimating age was chest hair and eyeball in it. Like, it's really all they had. He's an age. Yeah, they just kind of measured how long it took him to get pubes and went from there. <laughs> oh boy <laughs> um, any day now alright just count backwards excuse me Henry just hold hold this magnifying glass to this young boy's scrumple bumps <laughs> and tell me when he sprouts a good one I like that even the French people in the past in your mind have Winston <laughs> Churchill accents like I'm just translating the accent I'm just <laughs> I translating see. yeah they just they counted backwards from pubes and they arrived at about 12 I, I, I don't know how to say scrumple bump in French. <laughs> Something's lost in translation. So Victor was covered in scars and showed complete indifference to both nudity and cold, much like Jessica, <laughs> indicating that he had been on his own for some time in the wilderness. He was also completely mute. Unlike Jeannie, who was not biologically mute, there was something physically wrong with him. He could not produce sound, um, although he could definitely hear, and he had absolutely no grasp of language whatsoever. So, several people who had children go missing in the French Revolution came forward to see if he was theirs. I don't know how you just fucking misplace a three-year-old in the French Revolution, but it was a different time. Um, fleeing the terror. Oh god, we left I... Francois behind. D too bad. <laughs> he belongs to Whoops. the woods now. <laughs> we can't turn back and Jean-Marie. But, but Jean-Claude, no Jean-Marie. <laughs> Francois must learn to be a man alone. Those are both men's names in French, so I like that this is a gay couple that have lost their children. <laughs> hey, the past is another country. Progress isn't linear. You do not know whether or not there was a gay couple in revolutionary France fleeing chaos and accidentally leaving behind their delicate son, Francois. You you don't know that. What a beautiful you don't know. love story. Um, Well... Fear not, there was also rumors that he may have been the illegitimate son of an aristocrat. There was even rumors that he was the illegitimate son of the king. Dumped in the woods to conceal- <laughs> Yeah, I think if they want to dispose like of- Like, every random child found in a, like, a, a, a ditch is, like, clearly, clearly going to be royalty. That's a little romantic. Just the Anastasia theory of missing children. <laughs> every every child who I do not be, know the immediate parentage of must either be a changeling- or the sky of a lord. Those are the options. I think if a king wants to get rid of an illegitimate offspring that could, you know, threaten his legitimate children's claim to the throne, I don't know how to say this in a non-horrible way, but I'm pretty sure he knows how to finish the job. They don't just dump you in the woods and let nature handle you. Um, yeah, yikes. we usually just don't like nature take its course. We usually use arsenic. Yeah, the royals have never really been squeamish about murder. 
Although, Victor had a prominent scar straight across his throat that didn't look like his other scars. He'd almost definitely had his throat cut by his parent, who left him to die in the woods. Oh. Yeah. I think people forget how tough the human throat is. It's difficult to saw somebody's throat open. It is genuinely hard. And I think people underestimate the skill it takes to get through cartilage. Never mind the tendons. We have a rule about self-incrimination and you are river dancing all over it. Skill, Janelle. <laughs> Underappreciated. <laughs> I don't think you could kill a fish if I gave you a brick and instructions. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm just, I am squeamish. I am genuinely squeamish. <laughs> like, I will watch you kill a fish. Like, oh yeah, I won't blink. But like, if you ask me to do it, ooh, ooh, ooh. No. There will be tears. No. <laughs> there's gonna be tears, there's gonna be snot. <laughs> there's. I'm not gonna be good. Like, they're just gonna find me, like, four hours later, like, in the fetal position, covered in fish guts and blood. <laughs> and the fish won't be dead, it'll be suffering. I mean, if you really want the fish to die, just exposing it to the air for four hours might do the trick, but. No, I'm just. I'm just gonna be, like, trying to desperately do CPR on the half dead fish. <laughs> This is why no one takes you camping. (laughs) (laughs) Because everyone's going to therapy afterwards. In any case, um, nobody who came to see Victor claimed him as their own. His identity was never discovered. And it's theorized that he was almost definitely abandoned in the woods because of a disability, most likely autism. Mm. He he varied from genie in several ways, but he had several key characteristics of autism. And it's estimated that he'd been in the woods since around the age of three or four, which is when autism first becomes apparent. Yeah, we're terrible wow. to the disabled now, but we have been... This is a high point. We've been worse. This is a high note We've... in humane this treatment. This is not good. Uh-uh. Yeah, like, when you read Changeling Myths, and you're just like, Oh man, it's so weird that people in the past thought their babies could be replaced by elves. Um, one of the predominant theories about, like, the existence and a nature of changeling myths is that this was actually people's like attempts to understand children with developmental disorders. Yeah, it's regressive autism. But like, do know that like one of the major recommendations to do with a changeling is to kill it. Yeah. Now we just deny children vaccines and that's gonna work out the same anyway, so... We haven't made a whole lot of progress. You end up in the same place. (laughs) It's just a little bit of a workaround, a little bit of a circumlocution there. We've been peddling- Taking the long way around to killing your own offspring. Oh, when it comes to to the humane treatment of autistic children, we've been peddling really hard to get nowhere. It's the exercise bike of autism. We Yeah. Victor was taken to the National Institute of the Deaf in Paris to be evaluated by some of the best doctors of the day, including Roche-Ambois-Cucurant-Sicard, who is incredibly famous if you take classes in a variety of developmental and educational psychology. Um, oh yeah, I've met him. Cool dude. Cool dude. Died a hundred years ago, but yeah, you know, we partied. Yeah, he's he was lit. <laughs> Great. Victor happened to be relatively fortunate as far as, like, wild children with mysterious throat scars go. Because pre-industrial revolution, wild children weren't actually unheard of. There have been around 50 documented feral children in the last 700 years, but there's probably a lot more that just never got reported. Unfortunately, it was a relatively common and somewhat acceptable practice to just dump your unwanted or disabled kids in the woods to die. Just full-on Hansel and Gretel. Oh, 100%. You just yeet that son bitch into the woods, I believe, as, as the children say. Just... 
slam dunk an autistic toddler into a log. <laughs> Dear God. You belong to the trees now, son. Yeah, unfortunately, when you've got superstition and starvation combined, this is what happens. And sometimes those kids survived. It's sort of a numbers game. If you dump enough kids in the woods, some of them are going to come out of this. Statistically, somebody's going to figure out which mushrooms are edible. Yeah, and I mean, no one really gave a shit. Every now and then, locals, churches, and widows usually would be the ones to, if, if they found them, they would try to feed them and take them in. But no one really made a like a, an effort to try to round them up and study them. Victor, however, happened to be discovered during the throes of the Enlightenment. A different time. A different time with Winston Churchill accents, apparently. Hello, I'm Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope I think, not. therefore I am. Oh, please <laughs> not. I had so much respect for Descartes until this exact moment. We will think on the beaches. We will think in the fields. Oh. <laughs> I'm just imagining all the horrifying Winston Churchill slash fiction that you have written on your computer. Hey, I didn't write it. I downloaded it. That's what's useful about the internet. Mm, Churchill on Descartes. Rule 34 oh. knows no boundaries, be they boundaries of decency or time. Yeah, you'd think that, but, like, there is so little Merkel fic, it's really disgusting. I hate Everyone, that like, you know Everyone, like, is shipping that. Trudeau and Macron. I hate that. I hate that you know these things. Stop it. Yeah, Billery is weirdly popular, no, even though it's, like, a canon it, That's canon. That's, that's <laughs> what are, those are people who are really married in real life. Yeah, yeah, and people are also writing fiction about them. There, there's a troubling amount of Obama fanfiction, I do know that. yeah. The the Reagan Gorbachev stuff though is spicy. Who's doing this? So many people, Janelle. Do none of these Too people many. have parents that love them? Yeah, like there's this one dude who's really into like BB Netanyahu stuff. Oh my god. I wonder if he's okay. I feel like that might be a hate crime. <laughs> oh, it definitely is. The pairings themselves are against the Geneva Convention. <laughs> when I am a licensed psychologist, someday if they allow this to happen. You know, somebody drops the ball, I slip through a crack. I, I intend to charge a, a fair fee for my services, but I will make an exception for fan fiction. If you bring <laughs> me a fan fiction that you wrote that involves Muammar Gaddafi licking the nipples of Angela Merkel, I will give you therapy for free. Oh no. As long as you require it. That's absolutely my no TP. <laughs> you're you're going to be my first client. I can't, <laughs> I can't make you any worse. <laughs> I'm too far gone, Janelle. Send me to the woods. <laughs> you may be a 28-year-old autistic child, but it's not too late. It's thematically similar. <laughs> so this is a time in human history when we were really well, we we're really struggling with this idea of what separates man from beasts, and it was hoped that Victor would answer that question and sort of settle the debate. He didn't. Spoiler alert, because that's a lot of burden to put on a 12-year-old feral child. Yeah, a little much. Came out of the woods naked in 1800, but sure. Solve for us the mysteries of the universe, strange nude child. Yeah, just some kid chewing on a hunk of raw meat in the corner. It's great, he holds the His key. His flecks of drool have wisdom, but it only, only lives. <laughs> this is a weird time in human history when, like, the great unwashed were really into philosophy at the time. This was a popular thing. It wasn't just for nerds. This was like what cool kids did, like go to the ballet and shit. 
Uh, yeah, you know, like going to the symphony on a Saturday night. It just doesn't get any wilder than that. Well, I mean, like, the original reason why they have flesh-colored tights is so they look... Scandalous. Get those asses in seats. Give the people what they want. A nearly naked, fully formed woman's leg. That's just... That's how I get my jollies. Just a, a yeah. flesh-colored bulge in an effeminate man's tights. Just mm. the silhouette of a human being's thigh. <laughs> Fuck yeah. That's what sex is, Jessica. That's exactly how it works. I, I've got it all figured out. But the case of Victor caused so much of a stir that bookies at the time actually took bets on whether Victor would learn to speak, would become civilized, etc. So you could actually put money on this Classy. Kid. Yeah, super classy. We'll bet on anything. People did not have enough to occupy themselves back in the day. This was the bachelorette of the Enlightenment. Oh, absolutely. Language was believed to be a huge factor in what made people... People? And... At the time, it was wondered if it was even possible for a person without language to have thoughts, which was also a question when Janie was discovered. Keep in mind, the papacy had only settled the debate about whether Native Americans were human beings in 1537, which wasn't as far back as it should be. Even when you with a date that starts with 1500, that is still way too late. <laughs> oh, we were still figuring out if black people were human at this point. So, you know, this is... Yes, we're grappling with the big questions of the day, but also, like... We're incredibly racist and ableist at all opportunities at this point in human history. Just the breadth and depths of human ignorance at the time is amazing. It's stupendous. It's astounding in its permutations. Yeah. It's like a really fascinating bruise. It's like when you look just like a, like a huge, like, gnarly bruise that appears to be in, like, four different stages of healing. Just... That's how what kind of fascinating it is. It's fascinating in the same way as, like, a really aggressive fungal infection. I actually have a huge, massive bruise that covers most of my forearm right now. And yes, it's been, it's, I've heard. I got punched by a bunch of Jews for reasons that I <laughs> yes, cannot elaborate yes, on on a podcast. <laughs> I didn't do anything. They punched me because I grew up Catholic. There's context that I'm not allowed to explain. <laughs> it's fine. My life is Context fine. Context only helps so much. Don't ask. Jews hurt <laughs> when they punch you. That's what I learned this week. It was friendly punching. I, I like... I They weren't random Jews. They're they're good. I like them. They're my friends, but... Yeah. They're, they're friends who punch you. Yeah, you know. Because you're Catholic. There's more to it than that, but that is... As friends do. Yeah. So I've been watching myself turn yellow all week. Like a ripening banana. Like the world's slowest and most disappointing kaleidoscope. <laughs> so Victor was pretty much immediately disappointing, which should be unsurprising. Victor preferred running on all fours, even when he was encouraged to walk upright, which kind of blew away the theory that humans would walk upright in all circumstances. It was sort of believed was that what made us human was the fact that we walked upright, because I guess this was before the time when we knew about kangaroos. Or like all birds. Is that upright? I don't know. I guess. It's upright-ish. Penguins are men. Pass it on. <laughs> if you've ever if you ever shaved a penguin, it would be a man. Or if language is important, if you ever shaved a parrot. Both of those things feel like they should be illegal and also sex <laughs> crimes, so... <laughs> I, don't, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you, like what kind of like zoology or biology degree you have. I don't care what university you belong to. You're a pervert. They also don't have fur. Like it's it's a modified feather, so I don't even. It doesn't even seem safe. Can you shave it? I don't you think just need, so. Like particularly powerful razors. This is not a question like, I need or want answered. What gauge do you need? No, stop. 
Stop. <laughs> How do you sh- can you shave a penguin? This is not a question anyone. Wonder if the internet knows. No, Jessica lives way too close Hello, to a internet. zoo for anybody to answer this can question for her. You oh dear God. Shave a cat? No, your arms? Of course. Fuck a husky. No, don't do that. It'll yeah. ruin its undercoat. It'll look weird. Um, can you shave over a tattoo? Sure. Can you shave with just what? Don't. Don't shave with just water. No. Penguin. Googling this should trigger an automatic alert to authorities. <laughs> this should automatically put you on a watch list of people who are not allowed at the zoo. When you read this, less duh, please pay it your full attention. First, you will need to tie it up. What Somehow, the fuck are you there reading? Are snappy little things, so you might find they try to bite you. It's 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 Yahoo answers. Um, of course it if is. I were you, though, instead of shaving using hair removal cream, might work better because it will leave them soft as a baby's bum. And that was by Redheaded Hooker a decade ago. This person needs to be on a watch list. The internet was a mistake. Let's go back. Back to smoke signals. And the next person just said, like, you can't shave a penguin. They don't have any hair. As they are a bird, they have feathers, and therefore you must pluck them. No! The answer is leave penguins <laughs> alone. They didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, you have all the right information, but you came to the wrong conclusion. You're on the wrong side of history, B. Garrett. <laughs> Dear God. All right, well, we'll back to things that are not shaving penguins. Ooh, Auto Tom recommends a Gillette Mach 3. What? Who has shaved enough penguins to have that incredibly specific <laughs> advice? What the fuck? I, I don't know, a man I trust. What are people doing with all these shaved penguins? I don't know, apparently ten years ago shaving penguins was real popular. What's going on in 2008? Was this? A, it was a simpler time? It was a wild time. We elected our first black president, well you did. Well you did no I such did, thing. I did no such thing, I was, I was in Edmonton. collective you. Our audience you. Black guy. Real nice. What a time to be alive. Science? Drones. Thank you for that succinct summary of the presidency of Barack Obama. But Victor never learned to speak at all. He was mute for unknown medical reasons. Unknown medical reasons that weren't the knife wound? It may have been the knife wound. We're not entirely sure. It may have been some kind of autism. It may have been a throat issue. We don't know. But some people at the time believed that a child raised without any exposure to language would still develop speech to express their ideas and maybe even form what was called the natural language of mankind. There were sort of people who were obsessed with this idea that... Oh yeah, the, the language of Eden. Yeah, that there was a natural language that we would revert to in the correct circumstances, and they believed that maybe if Victor never learned another language, he would revert to this language. Wasn't there like a cruel, like... Yes! I don't know, 1600s, I can't like, believe you know this off the top of your head, you massive fucking nerd. Yes! <laughs> was it King James? It was! <laughs> you big nerd yes i uh, i have a huge nerd a huge nerd uh, king in the 17th or 16th century wanted to find out what the natural language of mankind was so he shut two children in a shed to see if what would happen you can do anything when you're king you don't need to see the research ethics board when you're king they did learn language but i don't recall which one well i mean like if you just like locked two kids in a shed with each other they would learn to talk to each other exactly but, like, that's not the language of Eden. Yeah, if you leave a group of people in isolation, they'll develop what's called a pigeon. It's a mm-hmm. it's a makeshift language <laughs> that they- it's not- it's not the bird. They will not <laughs> hurl birds at each other for <laughs> communication. Yeah, they're just gonna stop- start eating bread off the ground and, like, grooming each other for, like, lice. 
I don't actually think you know what a pigeon is, but um, uh, one of the really interesting places you see this is actually with deaf children. In a lot of developing countries, deaf children unfortunately end up in the streets. They're often abandoned, and teaching of ASL and uh, international sign language is not standardized and is often not available. So what you often see is that groups of deaf children living in countries like Brazil uh, will come up with pigeon sign languages. They'll invent their own mm-hmm. form of sign language that they can use to communicate with each other. This is true anytime you have a group of humans who are for some reason unable to communicate, but have a connection to each other. Like, there's an entire Martha's Vineyard-like sign language due to the fact Martha's Vineyard has, like, this weirdly high rate of, of congenital deafness and have for a very long time. Yeah, but unfortunately, this doesn't happen if you are raised in isolation. You will not invent your own language if you don't have anybody to communicate with. There's no point. One of the doctors who examined Victor declared that he was a, quote, incurable idiot. That's a little harsh. He was actually capable of learning. Mm-hmm. So a student of Sicard's, a man named Jean-Marc Gaspard de Taud, disagreed, and he took it upon himself to teach Victor language using a combination of flashcards, games, drills, repetition, and a collection of metal letters that he could rearrange in order to form messages, along with, I mean, good old-fashioned child abuse. A lot of Itard's techniques actually have formed the basis of modern education techniques, especially education for children with disabilities. A lot of these things are still used with kids who have communication problems, like autistic children. He's very much the father of special education. And it's, it's, it's very similar to teachers today, where, like, he had to buy all his own school supplies. Yeah, unlike teachers today, he dangled Victor out of a five-story window to see if it would shock him into speaking. Um, I mean, unlike your teachers. You were homeschooled, so you're basically just incriminating your mother. I, I, I actually was only homeschooled after grade six. And the reason why I was homeschooled after grade six is because... My teachers were bullying me. Were they dangling you out five-story windows? No, the the school wasn't that high up. Itard also would just sometimes shock Victor with a battery for no reason, just to see what would happen. Uh, another fine tradition. He would also sometimes punish Victor for no reason to see if Victor had a sense of justice, which he very much did. He got very angry if he was unjustly punished. Cool experimentally, still child abuse. You're still beating a child. For no reason. Mm. It's basically like that he'd publish it. Like, look at these fascinating results. Other people are like, ooh, fascinating. Arbitrarily beating a child? Brilliant. Victor's life had kind of the same problem that Jeannie's life had, which was that the people trying to help him had ulterior motives for themselves. You know, being the person who manages to break through all odds and bring this feral person into civilization would carry instant fame and fortune. So oh, everyone involved huge. is out is looking out for number one, and it's kind of important to remember mm-hmm. that. But with patience, Victor began to grasp the fundamentals of language, and his receptive vocabulary began to expand rapidly. A receptive vocabulary is uh, how many words you can understand. It's, it's the lowest form of language learning. Dogs have receptive vocabularies. You could teach a dog any discrete noun. As long as it's not too abstract. Dogs can understand a vocabulary of somewhere between 50 and 200 words. They understand sit, stay, lie down, give, you know. Mm-hmm. They understand what these words Walk. mean. Walk? <laughs> no, she's got no interest. <laughs> <laughs> Just testing that one. Bianca's sleeping at my feet right now. Mostly mm. because she's cold and my feet are warm. <laughs> it has nothing to do with love. This is, this is about survival. So Victor could respond to written commands... 
and he could fetch the correct item if he was told to go get it. As his language developed, so did his social understanding, which was really interesting. In the beginning, much like Genie, he was largely indifferent to people, and he appeared incapable of empathy. Although, again, he had a lot of autistic traits. It's hard to mm-hmm. say how much of that was... Lacked empathy, slash blunt affect, slash years in the woods, question mark? Yeah, Janie definitively does not have autism, so it's a little easier to separate in her, but he's a little more up in the air. But at one point, when Itad's housekeeper, who largely raised Victor from his discovery onwards, she was crying over the death of her husband, which had occurred the day before, and Victor stopped what he was doing and attempted to comfort her, which was pretty groundbreaking for him, because up to this point, people were basically furniture to him. Mm -hmm. He was kind of indifferent to their needs and emotions. And he sat on them all the time. Those are chairs. Ate food off their backs. That's tables. And then lied on them to sleep. That's that's just hallucinations at this point. <laughs> that's a whole different problem. But the film about Victor that all of Jeannie's staff watched ends on a very high note. It ends with him making great progress and being just on the cusp of grasping language. All the methods that Itard used were highly praised, and Montessori schools basically still use Itard's methods verbatim. That's, mm-hmm. that's basically what they that's are. That's where the sad walrus comes from. I don't know that sad walrus was used by Itard, but other that's where than the that, static squirrel comes in. You, that's that's right, Victor. Your only goal in this life is to progress from walrus to squirrel. If that's the correct order, who fucking knows? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe you get like larger and sadder animals as you progress. I, I don't know. I don't pretend to know what Montessori schools are beyond. Some kids on my school bus had to wear a uniform, and I didn't. It's a it's a strange, fascinating system. The problem is that the movie doesn't show how Victor's life ended. Although the, the members of the team who left the theater were very energized and they, they felt that they could achieve anything with Jeannie, Victor never actually learned language. He only successfully learned to write two phrases in his entire lifetime. Le and odieu, meaning milk and oh god. <laughs> Why those? I don't know. <laughs> Vital vocabulary. Yeah. Vital for the sentence, oh god, we're out of milk. Oh god. Maybe he was just very frightened of milk. I don't know. But he had far less success than Jeannie ultimately would. Again, this maybe lends credence to the idea that he may have had an intellectual disability. But his progress plateaued and Itard eventually abandoned him. He lived out the rest of his life in anonymity with the housekeeper until he died from pneumonia at around the age of 40. And it's hard to say how Janie's life might have been different if the scientists had actually got to see how the story ended, because watching this movie was very much a pivotal point in deciding to turn her into basically an ongoing human science experiment. Oh boy. Yeah, so- Why would you even make that movie without researching the ending? They knew the ending. It was depressing. They were not- They knew the ending. It was depressing, so they just ignored it? Yep. Oh, good. There was an interview with the filmmaker in the book that I read about Jeannie, and he was, he was basically like, yeah, no, that part sucked. That was just him getting abandoned and then dying. So we just, we just didn't. You know, Hollywood magic, kids. I just, it's, it's like basing all your future career, career moves off of the most recent Batman movie. Yeah, basically. They, they went it's to- It's such a movie. bad idea. It's a terrible idea. It's- it's like watching Say Anything and deciding to show up unannounced at your ex-girlfriend's house with a boombox. <laughs> Just... It's not a good idea. It looks good in the movies, but oh my god, don't do it. Do not! She will not be impressed. She will not get back together with you. She's gonna call the cops. She is 100% gonna call the cops. Um, 
But from the early days of Jeannie's discovery, it was pretty obvious that she was a once-in-a-lifetime career-making case. A couple decades ago, it was really common for there to be big case studies. Like Sybil, who was the face of dissociative identity Mm. disorder, or Helen Keller, who was a huge breakthrough in education. The people who managed to break through to these people, to treat these people, became famous. They got big book deals. Uh, It was a huge deal. Oh, anytime you hear about Helen Keller, you hear one sentence about her and then it's like right into like the woman who like broke through. Ann Sullivan. I know her name off the top of my head, which I don't, I can't name my own teacher's. I, I had the same statistics professor for three months. I have no idea what her name is. She meant nothing to you. I had her class today. I couldn't tell you what her name is. Mm. Um, but I know Ed Sullivan. She discovered you. She gave you a breakthrough. She led you through the darkness. And yet, and yet. To the... Nothing. Gentle shores of chi-squared. <laughs> um, this is a median. But Jeannie also had the potential to bring in huge scientific grants. She could basically fund a lab by herself for potentially decades. And anyone who managed to make a breakthrough with her was going into the history books. Moneymaker. I mean, I know the names of everyone who worked with Jeannie, and they didn't make a huge breakthrough with her, so... Clearly, like, actually doing the thing you set out to do doesn't mean that much in the economy. Sometimes life does award points for effort. I've studied Jeannie in multiple psychology classes. She's come up in linguistics. She's come up in developmental psych. She is a staple of this field, and it would be hard to complete a psych degree without at least hearing about her in passing. It would almost be a talent that you'd have to intentionally cultivate, but that by that point, you would have heard of her. Yeah, and that's great if you're a creepy psych student with a morbid fascination for horrifying crimes. But for Jeannie, it meant that she got turned into a scientific football by everyone who was involved with her case. This is going to be, we're going to get into a quick discussion of how Jeannie's case was managed and grossly mismanaged after her rescue. And her adolescent years basically became a constant struggle between her doctors and child protection authorities. The doctors wanted to study her and do experiments with her, arguing that the research was beneficial for humanity. She had the potential to teach us a lot about disability, about child abuse, about the way that we learn language, about social development. But in order to get the best research results possible, she needed to be kept in kind of a consistent environment, which they wanted to do with the hospital. Child protection authorities wanted her to bond... Uh, I mean, this was this was the 1970s, so they're a little sexist. They wanted her to bond with an adult woman as soon as possible and sort of attached to a mother figure so that she could be in a stable home with a parent. They wanted her to have as normal of, of an upbringing from then on as possible, and those two things were very much at odds with each other. Jeannie didn't experience the kind of abuse she did pre-rescue ever again. Like, she, was, she wasn't abused by the scientists who studied her, to be clear. But to me, it's it's still pretty bad. It's, like, still bad with even less excuse. That's just it. Her parents were deeply disturbed and deeply mentally ill people, but these were professionals who fucking knew better. As we go through the story, it's important to note that everyone involved uh, claims that they were the one who had Jeannie's best interest at heart, and that everyone else in the story is a child-exploiting vulture who was only out for their own gain. It's like every time, like, a particular administration goes down. You can tell what they're doing poorly by, like, the number of tell-alls they get published. Everybody in this story is pointing fingers at everybody else. Most of them ended up hating each other. They all claim that they were the only one who was really looking out for this girl, and everybody else was just a goddamn vampire. Everyone's claims should all be taken with a generous grain of salt. Like a heap of salt. Yeah, everybody- A good sea of salt. Everyone who knew Jeannie stood to gain from their relationship with her. 
no matter how pure their intentions may have been. So at the hospital, Jeannie began working with a linguistics grad student named Susan Curtis and a teacher named Jean Butler, and they were working to sort of make progress on her language as well as give her female figures to attach to. Vital. It must be mom-shaped. It's gotta be mom-shaped. You need tits in order to keep a child alive. Everybody knows it. Our delicate woman brains were built for child-rearing. All men are good at are bench-pressing and chopping wood. You need boobs? Because, like, not only do they feed the child, but they're a handy flotation device to keep the child from drowning. If you hand a man a child, he will have a brain aneurysm and he will drop it. He will straight up eat it. He will be frightened. He will not know what to do. He will swing it around by the ankles. He will shake it to see what it's made of. He will use it to chop wood. He doesn't understand. It's it's frightening for him. New and frightening. Beyond his capacity. Jeannie generally preferred the company of men with beards because that was basically the only kind of human she'd ever been exposed to pre-rescue. She had very limited contact with her mother um, and her father was a man with a beard. Her, her mother, to be clear, was not a man with a beard. No, I, I assume not. If if her mother was a man with a beard, they left that detail out of the book. Yeah, like like poor Jean-Claude and Jean-Marie. <laughs> Why is it that the victors get to write history? Except Victor, obviously. He didn't get to write very much at all. Just, oh no, milk. Oh god, oh god, oh, milk. God, milk. Also, that was probably the second worst pun you've made on this podcast. The first one, <laughs> the worst one's in the first half of this of this episode. <laughs> and it shall not be repeated. Oh, dear God. So, these women would take Jeannie on outings, they gave her affection, and they were monitoring her progress. Uh, when they tried to jump in with language right away, it was clear that Jeannie was still adjusting, and she was not ready for that yet. So they gave her kind of a summer to adjust, to bond, to get used to being around people, and she ended up becoming particularly close to the grad student, Susan Curtis. Curtis had intended to test Jeannie's verbal intelligence along the way. That was going to be her thesis project. But of course, Jeannie hadn't progressed far enough with language for this to be possible. So mostly they just hung mm-hmm. out. Uh, she would. That's how my thesis always turns out. This is the child that I'm meant to be experimenting on, but guess the real, the real result of this experiment is friendship. Let's go buy some plastic beach pails. No, uh, let's get a bucket this time. Curtis would often be silly in public with Jeannie to try to help her feel less self-conscious and shy about herself. And she reported that Jeannie had some of the best nonverbal communication skills she'd ever encountered. This is a common theme. Everyone who worked with Jeannie reported this. People could often sense Jeannie's moods and desires through subtle nonverbal signals she gave off, often without consciously realizing what even was signaling her mood. She just, she was so good at expressing things without words that you could kind of always tell what mood she was in. Psychic child. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at photos of her, she's she is like fascinating. Just her whole being. Yeah, it was something I noticed when like I, I looked at a picture of her. Is like she's very intelligent eyes. She does. That's a comment that came up a lot because there was there was this speculation in the beginning about whether she was intellectually disabled, but they ruled that out pretty quickly. And part of it was the fact that she did have such alert, intelligent, and expressive eyes. Uh, I think the exact quote from one of her researchers was, the lights are on and someone is home. Mm. They, she very much gave off the sense of a, of a child who was mentally all there, but just didn't have the words to express herself. When she was out in public, strangers often felt weirdly drawn to her, and Curtis reports that total strangers often offered Jeannie gifts and trinkets, usually colorful plastic items which they could somehow sense that Jeannie liked to the point of hoarding them. 
Psychic child. Yeah, she said the most memorable encounter she had with Jeannie was they were standing on a sidewalk and a woman was stopped at a red light and Jeannie was admiring this woman's plastic purse and without saying anything, this woman emptied her purse, got out of the car, and handed the purse to Jeannie. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I want those superpowers. Telepathically give me shit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, children would walk by and would give her their toys. People just had a sense that she was um, sad and neglected and that she needed something. N- no being could pass this child and think, that's a fine child. That child needs nothing. No, something is deeply wrong. There is a void. It must be filled with plastic. I mean, in school, everybody kind of knew who the neglected kid was. Some people just give off this aura of neglect. You just want to take care of them. A certain droopy sadness. Or you just want to date them. Like a beigeness to the soul. <laughs> yes, that. Um, you know, some people give them plastic purses. I give them several years of my 20s. You know. Life. Six and one half dozen of the other. Jean Butler, the teacher and the other one who was working with Jeannie that summer, applied and had been granted permission to take Jeannie to her house for day trips. In June of 1971, Jean Butler reported to the hospital that she'd been exposed to rubella, and that Jeannie had therefore been exposed to rubella as well. You're ruining the conditions of the experiment! Stop giving her rubella, which is German measles. Biological warfare. Those of you who were born in the 90s and were vaccinated. And the hospital was incredibly suspicious of this. They suspected that Jean may have made up this entire story as a ploy to get temporary custody of Jeannie, because it was against hospital policy to allow a patient to live with a staff member. But they didn't really have any other choice. Rubella is crazy contagious, and you can't just run around a hospital breathing it on people. And Jeannie was living in the hospital. You can't just have an infected child. Just running around looking shit. Yeah, anybody who's severely ill or very young can suffer from serious complications from rubella. It's it's normally not super serious if you're a healthy individual, but it, it can cause very serious complications, especially... Oh, it just rips through the immunocompromised. Yeah, and, you just know... Just destroys grandmothers. Where can you find large amounts of immunocompromised children? At a children's mm. hospital. But they were concerned that quarantining Jeannie to the isolation ward would completely undo the progress she had made and re-traumatize her all over again. So mm. they reluctantly agreed for her to be quarantined with Jean in Jean's home. Oh yeah, well I mean, especially because like, the, the quarantine, is it's just filled with men with beards who bark. That's all the orderlies. It's so weird that that specifically is required to take so care of- So specific! If you've been exposed to rubella, no other kind of orderly will do. It's just no, signing no. your own death warrant. So while in isolation, Butler filed a petition to be Jeannie's foster parent. She was an unmarried woman living alone, which made her unlikely to be approved as a foster parent back then, even today to some extent. It's weird how that's like the wrong reason she shouldn't be her mom. There was quite a few reasons she probably shouldn't have been, but you know, that's that's not really one of them. But regardless, she moved her long-term boyfriend into her house so that she could strengthen her application. Close enough. It's dedication. Living in sin for the sake of adoption. That's what Jesus would have wanted. I don't know. I think I think we're I think we're like violating one social taboo to like get past another. Yeah, it's life is a series of compromises and also church non-sanctioned sex, sex that makes the church. Pearl sad. would not approve. Absolutely not. Edna would be horrified. Flo, she'd be into it. Flo's the fun nun. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so Flo, Flo takes her habit off on the weekends, gets a little wild and crazy. <laughs> 
<laughs> I miss nuns being a thing. They were fun. Yeah. Um, They're like penguins. You're also not supposed to shave them. Do not shave a nun. That is 100% a sex crime. <laughs> Absolutely. Do not. <laughs> I'm not posting bail for you if you get caught shaving a nun. <laughs> I wouldn't expect that of you. Good God. Promises to bail me out have their limits. I know where the guardrails are. Yeah, sex crimes against nuns. Right there. Um, <laughs> right there. No one is required to talk to you ever again. Setting a firm boundary. Particularly not nuns. Oh, no. Again, I think that might be a hate crime. <laughs> Butler reported that Jeannie thrived and made huge progress while living with her, and there is some evidence to support this. She definitely became healthier. She was... You know, still on track with her her feeding and everything was getting better. She began puberty in earnest and she became almost entirely continent, which was a huge achievement for her. Almost entirely continent. Some of us can only dream to hit such heights. Yeah, you know what? Some of us will never peak so high. Her bedwetting almost entirely ceased and although she did start hoarding containers full of liquids in her room, you know, progress. Progress. No one was quite sure what that was about, but you know, what what was a couple buckets full of liquids? It literally says liquid. It doesn't say what was in there. Yeah, that feels euphemistic. There's a big difference between a kid who keeps like buckets of water in her room and like just buckets of unrefrigerated milk. I don't like your tone, Janelle. I'm telling you, you're going to give yourself diarrhea. I'm basically immune at this point. <laughs> we can only <laughs> hope so, and your roommate can only hope so. He has no hope left. His eyes are haunted. Because you're drinking lukewarm half and half that's been on a counter for hours. He does He does tell me off for that, to be clear. He does just like, he's like, why is has, has the milk been on the counter all day? And I'm like, I don't know. Just extra just, flavor. Just think of it as an experiment. I'm making milk you can chew. You know, like yogurt, only less scientific. <laughs> just buy goddamn yogurt, Jessica. You have disposable income now, which is terrifying. Please spend it oh, on it yogurt. No, I, I can't spend it on yogurt. I need to buy more skulls. Yeah, Jessica's foray into having a steady income has so far been terrifying. <laughs> the The first thing that she did was search for and acquire a model of a human skull. Life-size. It's downhill from here. <laughs> Butler also claims that Jeannie made enormous strides with her language acquisition while living with her, and that she became, quote, positively chatty, which everyone else doubts, but her boyfriend mm. seconded this. Sure he did. The grad student, Susan Curtis, continued to visit Jeannie every day to work on her language, and Butler did not like her at all. She complained that Curtis was incompetent, bad with children, and that she had no business working with Jeannie. This woman does not mince words. Back off. My child. Oh, yeah, big time. She also complained that Curtis did not help with domestic chores or Jeannie's care, despite the fact that she was hanging out all day. Which, I mean, I can see. She's she's there for Jeannie. You can you can vacuum. I mean, it, it isn't her house. Like, I don't want to be shitty here, but, like, she's just a grad student trying to grad student. She doesn't know how crusty you like your carpet. Maybe this is how you prefer it. I'm not here to judge. Maybe you like having tomato sauce up the wall. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. It's an aesthetic. It's also a breeding ground for flies, but you know. So there was huge animosity between Butler and what she called the genie team, which was a nickname she meant to be offensive, but ended up sticking and they kind of liked it. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I 
can't even tell what's supposed to be insulting about it. I don't know. Just maybe if you say it in a really sneery voice. The genie team. There you go. Not even sound Ben sounds cool. I know. Sounds like I'm just resenting them because deep down inside I want to be them. Well, you you can't. You're Thank God you're not a psychologist. Oh my gosh. I should never be. Please no. Ever. Don't let me touch other people's brains. Not even metaphorically. I was going to say, you might not know what a psychologist does. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, trust me. I know what a psychologist does. They sigh exasperatingly. It's a good- we do- it takes two years of skill just to learn that sigh. There's a particular sharp inhale that I think I I live for. That's all of our grad classes- that's all that they are. You know, condescension 101, being dismissive 205. It's all the good stuff. Butler felt that the researchers were too invasive and too demanding of Jeannie, and she thought that their presence in her home was disruptive and counterproductive. On the other hand, the research team felt that Butler wanted to be the next Anne Sullivan, and that she was just looking to get all the credit for healing the wild child. They also criticized her for requesting a 58% salary increase from the hospital as a result of raising Jeannie, which was denied, and also that she had an extensive history of legal battles from suing past employers. This is sort of a, a trick of hers that she liked. Oh boy. I'm not going to say that any one of those things is a red flag. But together. But together, it's a certain concerning constellation. It forms the shape of a crocodile eating a baby. Yeah, it's taken together, they're a bit much. So there was also an incident between Butler and Riggler, David Riggler being um, Jeannie's head psychologist, that escalated tensions between the two of them. So at one point, the Riggler family got a new golden retriever puppy. And Riggler told Butler that he would be dropping by the house to show Jeannie the puppy. They knew that she would ter- that she was terrified of dogs, but because they hadn't finished going through her father's abuse diaries, they didn't yet know why she was afraid. They assumed it was just a lack of exposure. So Riggler said that he would have the puppy stay in the car, and that he hoped this controlled exposure would help Jeannie start to get over her fear. She could look at it through the window, but it couldn't get to her. Butler told him not to come, but he came anyway. And when Jeannie predictably reacted with fear at the sight of the dog, Butler banned Riggler and his team from having any further interactions with Jeannie. This changed, however, when Jean Butler's application to foster Jeannie was ultimately denied for unspecified reasons. Because you're living in sin, harlot. <laughs> it's... ha oh, Shame. Shame. Shame! Well, she, she suspected that the research team and the hospital had sabotaged her, although they claim otherwise. They claim that they did not interfere with her application. Jeannie was reportedly upset when she was told that she would be leaving Butler's house, and Butler reports that she shook her head back and forth, saying, no, no, no. After Jeannie was removed from the Butler home, she was taken to the home of David Riggler and his wife, Marilyn, who then became her foster parents. And despite an existing hospital policy about staff not not acting as foster parents for patients, it was decided that an exception should be made in this case. I bet there was. Uh, yeah, a little bit. She was incredibly valuable. A vital asset, you might say. A human child, you might reply. You're just leading up to a human trafficking joke, and we're not ready for that. (laughs) We blew past that several episodes back. That's true. Riggler states that he had offered up his home only as an emergency backup in case a better option could not be found, and that he'd been pretty uncertain about doing so. The Rigglers had three adolescent children of their own, which may have made them more appealing as foster parents than the childless Gene Butler. (laughs) See, they've already not killed three. Look at us go. Talent. This was intended to be a temporary arrangement. He and Marilyn had initially planned to keep Jeannie for around three months, but she ended up living with them for the better part of four years. 
bit of a bit of a schedule slip. You know, life Almost comes at you fast. Thesis. Oh, don't you even bring that up to me. <laughs> I will punch you through a phone line. Violence. So Jeannie had a hard time adjusting to life in the Riggler home. Her incontinence briefly returned, probably due to the stress of changing her routine, and not actually because of anything that they did to her. She was initially terrified of the of the puppy, but David Riggler quickly solved that by having Jeannie and the puppy sit on opposite sides of a sliding glass door until Jeannie calmed down. Uh, what were you going to say by, like, by having a shot? <laughs> <laughs> Just take her out back, boys. No. Right, two barrels right to the snout. Dear God, no, 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 no. She was, she was given the opportunity to interact with the puppy in a controlled environment, and she eventually tolerated the dog. She never loved dogs, and she was always afraid of strange dogs, but she was able to form bonds with dogs that she knew. So Jeannie was not as talkative or as well-behaved as Jean Butler had reported that she was been, that she had been. The Wrigglers believe Butler had greatly exaggerated Jeannie's progress to make herself look better as a teacher, and Butler claims that the Wrigglers were just bad at dealing with Jeannie and that they would have seen the same progress if she'd been if they'd been good with her. So, you know, again, pick mm. pick your fighter. Um, mm. we'll never really know for sure. <laughs> Mortal combat! And then like Butler just rips out Wrigglers' spine and beats him with it. I'm not sure that's how scientific disputes go down, but it would be much more exciting if they did. Finish him! Then they just pull out their thesis and they start slapping each other. Aw, it's the nerdiest fight I can imagine. But for the first three months after moving into the Riggler home, Jeannie spoke very little, and when she did speak, it was mainly in single-word utterances. Her language improved after that, but she was never talkative or chatty. To complicate matters, Jeannie had also developed a relationship with her mother while living with the Wrigglers. Her mother had had cataract surgery that restored her sight, uh, and she began visiting with Jeannie once per week. Marilyn reported that she felt uncomfortable acting as Jeannie's mother when her real mother was in the house, and so these visits typically took place at a neutral third-party location. My mom territory is being encroached upon. They're gonna fight by, like, just, like, fluffing their apron and, like, make it to make themselves look bigger. It's how suburban moms kill each other. It, it's, always, it's always terrible when suburban moms fight. Like, the fact that they lack claws means that they, the fight is longer and more brutal. Stop kidnapping women. <laughs> so the Rikers noted that Jeannie's mother was alarmingly oblivious to the severity of Jeannie's condition or the role that she had done that she'd played in creating it she once noted um, Jeannie's unusual bunny walk and she asked the doctors what they did to her to make her walk like that which David Riggler found flabbergasting oh yeah you did it this was, bef this was before Absolutely. I understand her, you were blind at the time, but, like, she's been doing this for a while. Her bunny walk preceded her into the hospital by several years. Jeannie's mother found the Wrigglers condescending. I mean, there was some miscommunication about why they weren't meeting at the house. The Wrigglers claimed it was because they weren't comfortable acting as her parents when she had a real parent in the house. But Jeannie's mother, Irene, believed that they just didn't want her in the house because of her social standing. She felt that they believed she was too poor to Trailer Park in order to stand in front of them. So, after she began befriending Jean Butler, however, Jean Butler encouraged her to file a complaint about the Jeannie team. Sure she did. Yeah, and she continued to file her own complaints. I mean, she basically filed complaints the rest of her life about anything and everything that she could. So we're going to take a moment to talk about Jeannie's brain development, because most of her, like, her most significant developments happened while she lived with the Wrigglers, and this is probably the closest that she ever came to reaching her quote-unquote full potential, considering how much brain damage she'd endured. So Marilyn Wriggler started by actually teaching Jeannie how to throw a proper fit, which is not a skill you usually teach a child. I mean, it's, it's vital. 
Like, it'll really help them in the job market. Employers expect it nowadays. Like, it used to be optional. Like, it used to be just something that, like, you could use to pad a resume. Now, like, you can't even get into a good school if you cannot throw a proper wobbler. So, yeah, one of the first things Marilyn Riggler trained she needed to do was to throw a proper fit when she was upset and to stomp around and slam doors instead of scratching at herself. Probably better. Yeah, she noticed that Jeannie was starting to take an interest in her appearance, and she started painting Jeannie's nails and telling her that she didn't look as good when she scratched herself, which may have been cruel, but it it, it did prevent most of the self-harm. I will, I will toxically gender roll you into stopping scratching your face off. Enjoy. Yeah, and I mean, she never stopped having tantrums or self-harming completely, but they did decline significantly. And Marilyn learned how to de-escalate her verbally most of the time. Jeannie also learned to express her anger by shaking one finger, which was a habit people commented on throughout her life. Marilyn also worked hard with Jeannie to address her problems with chewing and swallowing, and after four months she was able to start eating more normally. Rather than being a human Venus flytrap where she just holds food in her mouth till it dissolves. Can you just imagine doing that? It's disgusting. Like, just like, just like holding a cracker in your mouth until it like... Comes, comes undone in your mouth. I don't think my like, gag reflex until will it allow turns it. into soup. Yeah, my gag just reflex just doing that with every food. Not allow that at all. At this point, Jeannie also started to show some sensitivity to temperature. I, I don't think she ever actually reached anything approaching normal temperature sensitivity, but she did become more attuned to her own body sensations and when she was cold. I, I think having a body is overrated to begin with. So Susan Curtis continued to work with Jeannie throughout this time, and she noticed that Jeannie did not listen to verbal information unless she was directly addressed by name, and Jeannie would often just walk away or refuse to acknowledge the person speaking to her, even in mid-sentence. So to address this, Curtis began reading children's stories to Jeannie, and at first she was indifferent, but after some time she began to engage and respond. So she became more willing to tune in to what other people were talking about, even if she wasn't addressed or directly involved in the conversation. Janie was extremely fond of classical music, probably because the only music she'd ever been exposed to were snippets from a neighbor child's piano lesson when she was growing up, and that, that neighbor tended to play classical music. Can you imagine that being, like, your only exposure to music? Just, like, a tiny, half-formed being plunking at a piano? Right, like, I've seen- I've lived long enough now to Formed see trends come and go, but I don't see that one ever coming back. Mm, sticky piano keys. That's my favorite. That's the mark of a true, true musician. So, Curtis would play classical music for her on the Wrigler's piano, and whenever Curtis would try to play something more contemporary, Jeannie would get upset and place a piece of sheet music that she knew to be classical music on the stand. Hmm. So there were certain pieces that she Tire knew recognition. were- Oh yeah, she knew they were classical, and she would just shove them in your face if you didn't play classical for her. <laughs> Breaking Jeannie of her masturbation habit was much harder, and it took a whole lot longer, but by the end of four years, she'd pretty much completely mastered using the bathroom. To masturbate? Yes. Or to, to go ah, into okay. private. They they weren't trying to stop her from doing it, from what I understand, necessarily, but they we're, not were trying to no, at least get her to- We're saying not in front of me. Try to get a shut door between, you know, you and someone <laughs> else. Generally wise. Jeannie was recorded sharing something with Curtis for the first time. And I don't mean telling her a secret. I mean, I mean, she had something physical that she shared with Curtis. And even though she kept taking things from people, she liked to just steal stuff. Anything that wasn't nailed mm -hmm. down, she would just sort of yoink. I don't have the concept of property except when you're wearing my dress, bitch. 
She did show signs of recognizing that she wasn't supposed to do this. She seemed to understand that stealing things that weren't hers was wrong. Make of that what you will. Her social skills improved to the point that she was actually able stealing to- Stealing is wrong? I know. I, I can't believe we haven't told you all this time. You're my only guidance on this, Chanel! I have failed you. She was able to attend a preschool and then a school for intellectually disabled children around her own age. She learned how to do simple chores, iron clothes, use a sewing machine, and prepare basic meals for herself. And her social skills never reached anything that could even be remotely called normal, but she was much more functional than she used to be, which was kind of all they could hope for. Mm -hmm. Her progress also points to the idea that she was not intellectually deficient and never had been, just based on the, the rates that she was able to do other things that don't involve language centers of the brain. Her vocabulary grew much faster than they thought it was going to grow, and she was shown to recognize and understand more words than she actually used, which is, is true of all humans, by the way. Mm -hmm. you, you recognize a lot more words than you can actually define. Um, yeah. Like, you, you, have your, you have your used vocabulary, you have your understood vocabulary, and you have your recognized vocabulary, and each, of, each one is bigger than the last. You are a complicated soup, but all of you knows how to speak English. Or whatever language you speak, but probably English. Yeah, probably English, like, statistically. Unless you're just, like, you only speak Mandarin, but, like, you just find my dulcet tones soothing. I, that's a, that's a little sliver of our audience pie, you, but alright. You just find my cackle to be, like, a, a sweet, the sweetest of lullabies. Just a bomb for the soul. Mm-hmm, a literal bomb. I hope not. Do not make bomb threats while you're on a Skype call with someone from America. I got a cannon. The NSA are coming for you launcher. as we speak. I every every time I open my mouth, we we go right to DEFCON four. Although Ginny was making progress and she was able to accurately name most of the objects she encountered, by the end of nineteen seventy five it was pretty clear that Jeannie was never going to fully acquire grammar. She could not produce grammatical complex sentences, and so she mostly relied on semi-grammatical several-word utterances. She would mm. say thing like say things like "ball belong hospital," "I want to think about Mamba riding bus," and "tomorrow big big prize hula hoop." Well, I mean, that's clear right there. You yeah, know, tomorrow big big prize hula hoop. I mean, that's an exciting day right there. Well, fuck, that sounds awesome. Jeannie also really struggled with pronouns, which is true of a lot of people who grew up in, in languages that don't involve pronouns. Mm. So she constantly mixed up you and me. Mm, pronoun inversion. Yeah, like, she had a hard time with some, something to do with her, her theory of mind or her, her mental state. She just couldn't really understand the distinctions between herself and other people, even later on in life. Well, when you think about it, like, people always refer to you as you. They never refer to you as I, so, like, why should you refer to you as I? It's needlessly complicated, and I'm glad that I didn't ever have to think about it. I was just born into it. Jeannie also had a very, very limited ability to use questions. She was never able to form them to any degree. And when she was asked to make up a question, she would just produce actual, ungrammatical nonsense. And she would often respond to questions with ungrammatical nonsense. Just word salad, but with an excessive amount of honeydew. Well, if she was asked a question about where something was, any, any kind of where question, she almost always started her reply with the last word of the question. So if you asked her, like, where is Steve, she would begin it with Steve and go from there. Um, mm -hmm. took, I'm surprised anyone figured this out. I don't pay that much attention, but clearly they do. 
there's there's clearly something advanced or complex or different about questions. We're not sure what it is, but Jeannie was just never able to master this in any way, shape, or form. Interestingly enough, though, Jeannie would sometimes talk about her father. She was quoted as saying, Father hit big stick. Father is angry. Among other utterances about her father. Which was very surprising for the researchers, because it meant that Jeannie was able to use words to describe events that took place before she had acquired language. Oh yeah, yeah, that's interesting. This was not something that they thought she would ever be able to do. See, you do have fully formed thoughts and memories even when you don't have language, and once you've learned language, you can use that language to refer back to them, which is really interesting. Yeah, your ability to understand and conceptualize things isn't necessarily dependent on language. And, like, can be translated into it later. So we do have richer inner experiences, even without language. Jeannie also once said, father is dead, which is not something that she ever said about other people. So Mm. it seems that she was able to grasp the concept of death and the distinction between people who had gone away and people who were actually dead, which is interesting. She also could use language to describe fantasies and seemed to understand the distinction between fiction and reality. And she also made several recorded attempts to lie, which was treated as a very exciting thing. They, they weren't sure. Oh my gosh. She pimp slaps and lies? Just a badass bitch right here. It was also noted that Jeannie made pretty much the least effort possible with her vocalizations. So she would use the minimal response that she could in order to answer your question and she would try to abbreviate and smash words together as much as possible so that she could basically turn entire sentences into single-word utterances. She also had an extremely long latency period, by which you mean if you asked her a question, it would take her several minutes to acknowledge or respond to that question. So scientists aren't really sure how much of this is her personality, if she was just a stubborn, shitty teen, or if this was a genuine need for increased processing time. But I like that she just tries to make everything into one word. Because, like, that is how she understands things. Well, yeah, it is. Because, like, when you think about it, if you actually record someone's voice, like, there isn't any space between the word, unless they're talking very, very slowly in an unusual manner. Exactly. hear spaces, but that's just because we're trained to hear them. They're not there. Like, one word begins and one word ends, so we insert the spaces mentally. Oh, 100%. If you listen to another language, it feels like it, you can't tell where one word ends and one word begins because there isn't actually those delineations in that language. That's why it feels like it's going faster than it is. And that was the next note on my notes, you note stealer. <laughs> um, yeah, Jeannie didn't understand. Psychic child! Jeannie did not understand the division between words. So she was shown to understand the phrase I want as if it was a single word. She did not, not understand that that was two separate words. So she would use it together as a single word always before nouns. I want cookies. I want milk. She also understood help me as a single word as well. as And that was a word that she would use before some kind of verb. Help me mm. do this. Help me do that. It was also consistently shown that she could understand language better than she could produce it, which again is true of, I mean, everybody listening mm-hmm. to this podcast, that's just how language works. And Jeannie also continued to excel at nonverbal communication. She was better at using sign language than verbal language, but usually she would do both simultaneously, which is also actually true of most deaf people. She could also, which is really interesting, invent her own signs and gestures. They didn't actually <clears throat> research this because they weren't really interested in it at the time. They were mostly just interested in her- Damn it, historical I know, science. acquiring verbal languages. Your ableist chauvinism is showing. Yes. She could also correctly pluralize in sign, and she could use past <clears throat> tense in sign. So she did understand some elements of grammar. 
Mm-hmm. But her signing also was not perfect, and sometimes she would sign complete nonsense. I mean, yeah, seems a little cheap to be mocking her technique. Every yeah. now and then, she just critic. produced complete Everyone's nonsense. Everyone's a critic. Brain scans of Jeannie are also really interesting. Scientists theorize that her brain had lateralized in a strange way. So when you're born, your brain is basically just a primordial goo that can. It's basically an unset Jello mold. It is. And as you get older, your brain assigns certain parts to do certain tasks. This is called lateralization because usually tasks, sometimes tasks are isolated to one side or they they take place concurrently on two sides that communicate with each other. There's a big band of tissue in the middle of your brain called the corpus callosum. Brain bridge. Your brain uses to communicate with each other. They theorize, like, everybody's brain lateralizes in pretty much the same way. There's a general pattern. We wouldn't be able to do brain surgery if we couldn't. It would be a quite literal stab in the dark. Mm. Um, A stab in the dark that's going to remove your childhood. Um, So, for instance, if you are right-handed, there is a 95% chance that your language center is on the left side of your brain. There's about a 2.5% chance that it's on the right. And there is a 2.5% chance that it is split between the two halves of your brain. If you ever need brain surgery, um, the language center is the big thing that they really try not to uh, plunge a scalpel into. Yeah, they try not to poke that. So they'll actually anesthetize one side of your brain and then the other to see if you can still talk mm. to figure out where your language is. Uh, lateralization is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, but they theorize that this has gone horribly awry in Jeannie. And sure enough, the left hemisphere of her brain had significant signs of atrophy. So she was processing language with her right brain, despite the fact that her brain had probably lateralized like normally. It's just that the those parts of her brain had essentially died from misuse uh, and from underuse. In a very literal sense, brains are expensive. I don't just mean that metaphorically or like financially. I mean that like biologically brains are expensive. If your body says like, oh, well, we're not using this, it will get rid of it. <sighs> yeah, I think almost a third of the calories you eat just go to powering your brain. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's, insane. it's expensive. It's the, the hummer it's- of internal organs. Like, it slurps up calories at a ridiculous rate. Yeah, Just and if you're not humming. using something, you lose it. So, Jeannie's mm-hmm. right hemisphere attempted to be the, or appeared to be attempting to process language, which is sort of like making somebody use their non-dominant hand. But, like, the reason why she's using her non-dominant hand is because the other one got lopped off. Yeah. What's really interesting about this is that you process audio across you you cross process so mm. in, input from your left ear gets processed by the right brain input from your right ear gets processed by the left brain which is why if you really want to enjoy music you should have it coming louder from your left ear which is a completely nerdy thing that doesn't apply to life boo nerd but because her left side was atrophied she did actually didn't appear to be able to process language input from her right ear at all huh she could only process language that came through her left ear. If you whisper which, macaroni sensually into my right ear, I will understand nothing. What a what a handicap. Uh, However will you make it through life? Sensual mas- macaroni whispers are the only thing keeping me going. You lead a fascinating life. How am I supposed to understand the world if no one can softly whisper about ravioli into my ear? There are people who walk their significant others on leashes in public, who have less terrifying sex lives than you do. <laughs> and you are very much alone. I'm, I'm very good with doors. I figured that out early. Perfect. 
Jeannie's performance on tasks like recognizing rhymes was quite good, and she performed similarly to split-brain patients on a number of tasks. And a split-brain patient is someone who's- Cut the bridge! You do! That corpus callosum, that band of tissue that connects the right and left half of your brain, in some forms of epilepsy, uh, that is actually cut. Um, Epilepsy can cross the corpus callosum, so if you have a seizure on your right half, it can cross over to your left side. And sometimes cutting that bridge will reduce the severity and duration of seizures. So mm-hmm. some epileptics have had their, their brains split, essentially. And yeah. it, it causes all sorts of strange effects to your cognition. You wouldn't really notice them on a day-to-day basis, but they stand out quite a bit in lab tasks. So she was more like a split-brain patient than anything, which is really interesting. And her cognitive performance in general is completely all over the place. She doesn't fit any known pattern. She was quite weak in left-brain tasks, and she made minimal improvements no matter how hard they work with her. But on right-brain tasks, when she was in her late mid-to-late teens, her scores were between that of an 8-year-old and a, a grown adult. That's a pretty broad margin of error. It was very broad scatter, which is why it's hard to estimate her IQ or level of intellectual functioning. She doesn't fit our paradigms. Nobody else is trying to test people whose brains didn't integrate properly. Yeah, because, like, that's the thing about, like, an IQ is it's supposed to be ho- a holistic measurement. If all the different skills you use to, like, create that that holistic score, like, if they're all over the place, you're, the number you get is going to be incoherent. You have yeah. too many outliers. There's different skills in an IQ test, but they do correlate to each other. So mm-hmm. if you're significantly above average in math, chances are you are also going to be above average in vocabulary and verbal tasks. Uh, similarly, mm-hmm. with if you're quite low on one task, you tend to be lower on others too. But there's, there's no pattern like that found in Jeannie. She did have a sense of direction, and she could recognize where she was. She, she had some spatial reasoning, and she did quite good on mental rotation tasks. So what this is, is... She could totally flip her brain around like an owl. I don't... That's not... No. That's that's not ethical. Oh, oh, Alright, kids. Oh. It's it's time to test your spatial reasoning. Just whip your head around like a metalhead and see if your brain spins. No, no. You just gotta, you just gotta whip your brain around. It's like being able to control your ears. Like, if you really concentrate, you can do it. Or, instead of making your brain come unmired in its cerebrospinal fluid, um, <laughs> giving yourself an irreversible concussion, you could also just try the actual task, which is you're shown a 3D object, and then you are shown several other versions, and only one of them is actually the same shape as the object you're being shown, but it's been mm-hmm. rotated. So you have to figure out which one it is. So it, it involves mentally rotating a shape into several positions to see what it would look like, and then choosing the correct one. It's quite difficult. Uh, most people are not very good at this, but she was. She also had the highest recorded score in medical literature on the Mooney face task, which is a, a test. It has nothing to do with actually recognizing faces. It's a test that generates ability to extrapolate pictures of faces from minimal information. So you are shown a handful of lines, basically, where your brain is required to fill in the gaps and, and see a face. So she was very good at tasks involving this. She could work off of very minimal information mm. and have her brain fill in the gaps, which makes sense. Her tests of gestalt perception, which is your ability to integrate visual information, um, for instance, being able to see optical illusions. Yeah, yeah, and your ability to, like, appreciate modern art. Yes, those are all gestalt perceptions. Yeah. She, they placed her at the 95th Wait, percentile for adults. A, I was making a dickish joke. Was that, is that actually right? Well, it's, it's not necessarily appreciating it, but it's being able to recognize patterns. 
Okay, cool. <laughs> where there aren't necessarily any. So, um... I was just, I was just working out the word gestalt. No, that's true. It, it's it's taking maybe unrelated signals and being able to process them together. So, I mean, it, it mm-hmm. would affect your ability to appreciate a piece of art. To test it specifically, um, oftentimes you are looking at, like, people's ability to see an optical illusion. That's mm. a, good, a good indicator that your brain is integrating information and filling yeah. in things... Is that why I can't see those hidden pictures? Yeah, you're broken. Yeah, I just- I can't see them. Oh no, the hidden pictures that you put your face right up next to are an eye thing. Oh, is that an eye thing? I also can't see those. Yeah, a lot of people struggle with those. Um, I I can't see any hidden pictures. No, this is more, you know, you see that ambiguous drawing that can look like a young woman or an old woman, depending on how you squint at it. That's that's an optical illusion. That's what this This is. is, This isn't like the the different kind of optical illusion. No, no. It isn't about whether or not you can see this bo- boat in this scatter plot. Like, no, no it's no, like, no, no. is this a duck or is it a bunny? When I was in elementary school, we were required to check out one book from the library a week and read it. And those magic eye books were what all the kids who couldn't read picked out. Oh, yeah. Them and the eye spies. Yeah. Oh, all, all, the kids, record books. all the kids who struggled with reading, they just went straight to the magic eye. See, every time I was told that, like, look, the entire class was told, like, Make sure to, to 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 get a book that's like that's on your level, and then I I'd I'd feel real sad because like I didn't want to you know I didn't want to read the the second grader books I wanted to read I wanted to read the hard books, and I'd go over like the spot and like pick up a second grader book, and then they'd be like, "Not you, Jessica. Just pick whatever." Jeez. <laughs> the other kids are gonna flush your head in a toilet, but that was gonna happen anyway. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was inevitable. There's there's a swirly in my future. I just don't know where or when. It's the anticipation that gets you. It's like Chinese water torture, only with like way more water. That's real killer on the bills at Abu Ghraib. <laughs> that was dark. Holy <laughs> shit! All right. Um. Wow. Whew. Yeah, um, swirly for being a terrorist. I don't. Completely innocent person that we picked up and tortured. Just a poor man's waterboarding. <laughs> I mean, that's really what the CIA is about. It's it's about learning to make do with the tools at hand. I mean, all you need to waterboard is a piece of cloth and a bucket. So I think, yeah. actually, waterboarding is a poor man's swirly. <laughs> Perspective. I am going directly to hell. Is hell a watch list in the United States where you live? Oh, I'm already there. There's several rings of it. That's why. That's why they gave it that name. I'm gonna I'm gonna you're rise to the top. Na- you're, move- you're moving to the next level. Oh yeah, getting promoted. I'm not gonna be able to board an airplane by Christmas. Wonderful. That'll help our scheduling. Your parents' Wi-Fi is crap. <laughs> Don't remind me. So JD's brain had basically been forced to try to make up for her seriously weak left brain by relying mostly on right brain tasks. So whenever she could sort of adjust her her life or her cognition to to rely on her right brain, she was doing it. And on tests where she did score poorly, her error patterns do not match the typical error patterns seen in brain-damaged people. She was a category unto herself. Honestly, her, her linguistic and cognitive abilities could basically be an entire episode, but if you're interested in the specific technical details of what she could and could not do well, I really recommend reading a book on the on the genie a case. Book. Pick up any oh, on book. The genie case. Any yeah, book, just read it. Just grab Lord of the Rings. Elmo's New Adventure. Squint. I'll mm. tell you with secrets. Um, if, you, if, you, if you cross your eyes, you can see it. It'll okay. tell you all about genie. Magic eye picture of child abuse. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, though, this kind of leads to her decline. So in Jeannie's adolescence, the research grants funding studies of her were cut off. The researchers at this point were basically testing her for the sake of testing her, and they didn't really have any goals or hypothesis that they were testing. 
They had no plan. They had no organization. Uh, they didn't have any anything that they were trying to find out in particular. They were just sort of seeing what happened. Um, none of this data was being organized. It wasn't producing usable results. They weren't. None of it was scientifically sound. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Somebody needs to sit you down and tell you that you need to you need to write out your thesis statement. Well, they did. The NIMH concluded that involvement in the study had been beneficial for Jeannie, but they couldn't justify renewing the research funding again. So as a result of the loss of funding, many of the researchers immediately lost interest in Jeannie. The Rigglers did continue to be her foster parents, and Susan Curtis did continue to work with Jeannie and monitor her progress. But then in 1975, which was the year Jeannie turned 18 and became a legal adult, Irene expressed a desire to have Jeannie come live with her. The Rigglers agreed, and they ended their foster arrangement to allow Jeannie to move back into her childhood home with her mother. Oh, good. Yeah. And as a teenager, Jeannie's legal guardian had been a man named John Minor. Um, if you remember from part one, this is actually the lawyer acquaintance of David Riggler who defended Irene in court and got her child abuse charges dropped. Within a few months, however, Jeannie's mother became completely overwhelmed by the task of taking care of Jeannie. No shit. Yeah, it's hard to have a disabled adult daughter who has absolutely no social control. She found Jeannie's lack of self-control to be unbearably distressing, and so without contacting any of the former research team or the Wrigleys, her former foster parents, she went straight to the California Department of Health and asked them to place Jeannie in state care. Why? Honestly, we, we don't know. Just, unfortunately, your first step? The Wrigleys were horrified. They said they would have taken her back without, uh, without hesitation. You're the one who asked for her. I would find it would be morally questionable to do this to a great Dane puppy who got too big. Yeah, don't adopt something if you can't take care of it. It's kind of the basic rule here, but yeah, even if that thing you once shot out of your pelvis, like yeah, she's not a she's not a shirt you can return if she doesn't fit quite right. She's a yeah. person, a human being. So unfortunately, after being placed in state care, Jeannie was placed in an extremely abusive foster home. The rules were very rigid, her access to her favorite objects and her favorite activities was restricted, and contact yeah, contact with her mother was severely limited. Um, she was beaten for not following the rules, and she was emotionally abused, and she quickly regressed much of the progress she'd made. She returned to being incontinent, constipated, and largely nonverbal. She was once given a severe beating after vomiting and was told that if she ever vomited again, she would never be allowed to see her mother ever again. As a result, she developed a severe fear of opening her mouth and she largely stopped speaking or eating, losing weight she really couldn't afford to lose. At this point, she retreated to communicating almost exclusively through sign language. Curtis, the grad student who'd been working with her, still had regular meetings with Jeannie and she noticed the rapid deterioration in her condition right away. So she petitioned to have Jeannie removed from the home, but the state couldn't get a hold of her guardian, John Minor. When they did finally get a hold of him, he was re she was removed from the home and she was taken back to Children's Hospital for two weeks to recuperate. After this, she was placed in another foster home where she reportedly did quite well. But the foster arrangement ended in 1977 quite abruptly, and then this started a period in Jeannie's life where she was just bounced around. She bounced between various foster homes and institutions, group homes, in homes for the disabled. Uh, she became quite depressed during this time because she believed that nobody wanted her because she wasn't a good enough person. 
and she blamed herself for the lack of stability in her life, regressing even further developmentally. Cool. Yeah, this isn't a happy story. You were warned. So in 1976, Susan Curtis published her dissertation on Jeannie, titled Jeannie, a Psycholinguistic Study of a Modern-Day Wild Child. Jeannie's mother had been completely okay with Curtis up till this point, but she suddenly turned around and sued everybody involved with the research team over this dissertation, saying that it had been a breach of confidentiality and that the team had valued testing more than Jeannie's welfare and had overworked her. Which didn't seem like a concern before. Yeah, I know. How dare. Also, privately, she complained that she found the title offensive and she objected to the description of how Jeannie had been treated as a child. Which... I mean... Just because you find it offensive doesn't mean it isn't true. Yeah, I know, your husband kept a creepy, elaborate abuse diary that documented all the horrible things he did to her, but, you know, it wasn't that bad. Unfair. Biased. So her suit was dismissed with prejudice, (laughs) so she's not allowed to refile. After the fact, it emerged that Jean Butler had been the one encouraging her to file the suit in the first place. Jean Butler had kind of wormed her way into Irene's social circles and they'd become friends. And Jean Butler actually, she continued to speak out against the research team until she developed aphasia after a stroke in 1986. In 1977, Susan had been asked to take over legal guardianship of Jeannie. Again, this is the grad student. But in early 1978, Jeannie's mother barred her from seeing Jeannie and she put an end to all testing and observations, presumably as retaliation for the thesis. Furthermore, it was discovered that John Minor had dropped the ball, because apparently he wasn't that great of a lawyer, and he'd failed to file the paperwork to transfer his guardianship of a minor to guardianship of an incapacitated adult. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Minor oversight, which cost dearly. So as a result That's of him- That's the worst pun. Yeah. Uh, that. You win. I- I- Huzzah. Congratulations. I bested you at a terrible game that I should not <laughs> A game where no one can truly be the victor. Play stupid games- Not even win. Victor. He couldn't talk. Oh, stop. No, you can't <laughs> have your title back. Um- But since John Minor had allowed his guardianship to lapse, her custody was awarded to her mother, who immediately placed Jeannie back in state care. Oh, why? I don't know. Why, Irene? I don't know. Jeannie shuffled through a series of homes and institutions, some of which subjected her to severe abuse, and the researchers that she had worked with for years, I mean, most of her teen years and early 20s, were banned from seeing her. At one point in the early 90s, she was reportedly living in an institution which only allowed her one visit with her mother per month, But she was moved to a better facility shortly after that. Yeah, while she was in this institution, Susan Curtis was told that Jeannie was depressed and barely verbal. So that kind of prompted her move to a better foster home, where her condition improved somewhat. So Jeannie is still alive today. She lives in state care in an undisclosed location in Los Angeles. Her mother died in 2003 and her brother died in 2011, so there really isn't anybody left to know exactly where she is. She is reportedly at a small private facility and that she's doing quite well, although she is mostly nonverbal these days and communicates mostly through sign language. Susan Curtis is still trying to regain contact with her. My god, almost 50 years later. Oh my gosh, really? Has not been able to do so. No, she's a, she's a ward of the state. She's an incapacitated adult and her identity is private. She doesn't have the autonomy to be able to uh, override this. Who else would have, have the legal right at this point? It's the state. The state. She's vanished into the system. Anybody else who had a legal right to her is uh, dead. Is dead. It's extremely hard. I have noticed this. 
to exercise your rights when you are deceased. So inconvenient, really. I want to vote after my death. Just wheelbarrow my corpse to the polls. I, I demand that I be allowed to continue influencing policy for the next millennia. While I decompose. I, as I slowly rot, I wish for the right, nay the privilege, to decide whether or not we should legalize holograms. I want to be a goddamn hologram. Yeah. I want to be a glitchy dance. one that boots randomly and frightens my family. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be exactly as weird in death as I was in life. That feels achievable. I will turn you into a disturbing centerpiece that is trotted out at Thanksgiving. I fully approve. I've never taxidermied anything in my life, but I'm going to start with a full-fledged human being. You learn by doing, Janelle. You learn by doing. I want my glassy, lifeless eyes to be as unsettling as possible. I'll make you proud. So what do Victor and Jeannie teach us? What did we learn from these cases? It's hard to make generalizations about feral children in general because some of them are almost definitely dumped in the woods due to genetic anomalies or other disabilities. We don't know how many of these kids were born neurotypical and how many of them are, have pre-existing disabilities. And so it's kind of hard to know where this disability stops and where the trauma and brain damage caused by feral existence begin. There also just aren't that many feral kids, so it's, it's hard to draw useful conclusions from such a small population. And also, these are very far from controlled experiments. We have no idea how much or what kinds of abuse, malnutrition, injury, disease, etc. the average feral child has been exposed to. So again, we can't really draw useful conclusions. Academically, this is a big old black box. What we do know, though, is that feral children have taught us a lot about what we know about how the brain acquires language. And that is especially thanks to Jeannie. So for a long time, psychologists believed in a behaviorist model of language, which was popularized by B.F. Skinner. Basically, they believed that humans acquired language because whenever, as a baby, you made kind of vaguely word-sounding noises, your mm -hmm. parents would make a huge fuss over you, and eventually that reinforcement would get you to figure out how to speak. And your parents would hold you to higher grammatical standards as you got older, so you were kind of forced to get better and better at language in order to keep getting praised until you were fluent. Uh, that's not right. That's actually not how we learn language at all. But in yeah, fairness, like, even even from my own memories, that's not how learning. It's not how language works at all. I mean, this behaviorist model is actually how you learn to do a lot of things in your life. This is kind of how you learn to hold a fork and write your name and just yep. basically learn how to not be a rabid little beast. Don't shit on the floor. Exactly. So one of the things that kind of disproves the behaviorist approach to language is the fact that you can make up a sentence right now that you have never, ever heard before. You can make up a sentence that's so weird no one has ever said it before in the history of mankind. And it, it's really not even that difficult. I'll punch you right through the taint. That, oh my god. Oh, I've actually heard that sentence before, but... <laughs> I fondly welcome you to suck my dick right off. I'm... Oh my god, are we back to suck my dick right off? This was a scene <laughs> that Jessica picked up years ago that just became part of her personality, and I haven't heard her say it in years, and this is this feels like regression. <laughs> Actually, that's just a thing that I said. I didn't pick it up from anywhere. That's 100% oh, all-natural, original, organic Jessica content. <laughs> oh no. I didn't pick up, like, how to swear very early. Like, that was that was late language acquisition for me. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, though. Your brain can make this stuff up, even when you've never heard it. I will eat your mother in front of you. Oh. Th that's a war crime. Um, 
I, I come up with so many cool sentences. But, like, nobody's reinforcing Jessica for these sentences. If anything, I'm actively it, punishing her. Be, no one approves of this. And yet she won't stop. So that's one I of have, the big I have problems. internal motivation. So if language was learned through reinforcement, we should be able to stomp that out of Jessica's broken personality, yeah, but we can't. We should be able to extinguish it from my broken, fragile mind. And yet it keeps coming back. One of the other big problems is that unless you have studied linguistics in some meaningful way, you do not know the rules of your own native language. No. You understand them, but you don't know them. You always apply the rules perfectly, but if you were asked to explain why they're correct, you probably couldn't do it. So if you're an English speaker, which, I mean, wild guess, probably you are, uh, there is a whole bunch of stuff. Mandarin people who find our voices soothing. Yeah, I mean, they don't understand that they're being excluded anyway, so... Um, well, they get what they want. You probably can't list the uh, order that adjectives are supposed to go in, but if you hear it done incorrectly, you'll know. There isn't you Mm -hmm. can't just put adjectives in any order in the English language. There's a there's a way that they are supposed to go. Oh yeah, like like uh, size has to come before color. I can I can buy you a big green shirt, but I can't buy you a green big shirt. That's it sounds wrong. Yeah, no, gross. Exactly. That that tastes like salsa on ice cream. You can also hear when someone has chosen a word that is technically correct, but is not the best word for that particular sentence without really being able to explain why it's wrong. Um, One of my favorite examples of this is the fact that you shouldn't say rest in peace when someone goes to bed at night. Even though, like, technically those words are not wrong. It's it's just a, you know. (laughs) Yeah, you also can't put a kid down. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, that feels... Mm. <laughs> Although parents do say that all the time. Like, oh, I just put her down for a nap. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> or I finally I finally put her down. You're like, oh, oh, my God. <laughs> I'll play. I, I'm not ready for this kind of confession. My other favorite one is the fact that there is a difference between I have sinned father and I've been a naughty girl daddy. <laughs> and- Bless me, father, I have sinned. <laughs> Forgive me, Sorry, Daddy. Daddy I've been, I've been uh, naughty. Those are those are semantically the same sentiment, but you know, <laughs> you should not they're, use them at the same place. You know they're different. You know. <laughs> if you use those interchangeably, you have probably been molested by a Catholic priest. You definitely like. You've almost definitely been molested. Three percent chance. A really fun example, though, not of priest molestation. That's horrifying, but of of English. So, in English, you can only make plural compound words out of words that have irregular plural forms. You cannot make a compound word out of a word with a regular plural form. And you inherently know this, and you always get this perfect, even though you you probably have no idea what I'm fucking talking about. Kids start to understand and apply this rule at around the age of three. So a teacher, a creature can leave teeth marks, but it can't leave claws marks. Huh. Claw has a regular plural form, claws, so it can't be made compound as a plural. It has to be made compound as a singular. Claw marks. A monster that likes to eat mice is a mice eater. A monster that likes to eat rats is a rat eater. The mice is plural, rat is singular. Even if you still have no idea what I'm talking about, even after I've explained this, you never fuck this up. You do this correctly every single time. And it will Mm -hmm. sound wrong to you if it's done incorrectly. Another one, because linguistics is fun. There's a lot of verbs in English that are quote-unquote homemade verbs adapted from nouns. 
Uh, usually these have emerged in the last couple of decades, and they're normally derived from sports terms. Homemade mm. verbs are always given the standard past tense forms, even if they are based on verbs with the regular past tense forms. And again, your brain gets this even if you don't. So if a batter in a baseball game hits a fly ball that gets caught, that batter has flied out. You don't say flew out in this context, because in this mm. context, fly is a noun, noun turned into a verb. Ah, so we don't, yeah, we don't do it the same way as, like, the old etymologically similar, like, related verb. We do it like, like it's a whole new verb, which it is, technically. Which it is, and we always do it in the, we always use regular past tense. Mm -hmm. We never use irregular. In hockey, players do not get high-stucked. They get high-sticked. But y you use this rule all the time in your day-to-day -day life, and you have no idea that you're doing it. And you, you again, you don't make mistakes. These are things no. people do not make mistakes on, even though you didn't know these rules existed until now. Yeah, which is, like, one of the reasons why, like, there's a lot of arguments in, in linguistics, like, between, like, prescriptivism and descriptivism. Like, are grammatical rules meant to guide language, or are they merely describing it? Yeah, if a grocery store puts up a sign that says 10 items or less at the express checkout, should we just accept that that's becoming a, a gradually more acceptable use of that term? Or should we burn it to the ground and dance mm -hmm. upon its ashes? Should, should, we, should, we, should we drag the dro grocery clerks out into the street and then pelt them with fruit? If you're, if you're not a semantic asshole, uh, the word less- Should we just slam dunk a tomato into an adolescent's face? The, the reason that we're committing violence against children in grocery stores, the word less always refers to things that are, do not have discrete quantities. You mm -hmm. can have less water, less paint, anything that you can't make discrete. If you're talking about discrete items, it's fewer. Like, if, if you can count it, if yeah, you can count it's it, fewer. it's fewer. You can have- if fewer apples you cannot have fewer milk mm -hmm. and the other it should apply the other way around you should be able to have less milk but not less apples but in english we have adapted that that's that's no longer as incorrect to mm -hmm. us as it sh in popular usage that's that's not as incorrect as it used to be yeah. some people will absolutely set you on fire for saying that those people are wrong by the way just fyi they are assholes yeah they're dicks my favorite thing, though, is, like, when a pedantic person corrects something, but they correct it wrong, and that lets me correct oh, it the so other satisfying. way. Oh, it's so good. It's like, you know how, like, apparently sex is supposed to feel really good? Uh, allegedly. And, like, Go how, like the only thing better than that is, like, putting a Q-tip in your ear and wiggling around. Like, this is even better than that. I, I question the sexual prowess of people whose partners prefer ear cleaning. I mean, I don't. It feels so good. So good. Interesting. Um, this is the only reason I do it. That and the danger. <laughs> I was gonna say, you're gonna stab your eardrum clear out, clean out of your head. Right through the other side. It's gonna be awful. Oh, Thanks. dear God. We all have our own fantasies, you know. Uh, oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> That is body horror out of a Stephen King novel. That is not a <laughs> fantasy. Depends what genre. Yikes. But the point of all this is that English, or any language, is incredibly complex, and you don't actually know how it works on a conscious level. So, according to behaviorism, you should be able to pick up a language at, like, 18 and yep. just run with it. It shouldn't matter when you're exposed. 
But the famous linguist Noam Chomsky figured out that behaviorism is not the way that our brains learn language. Linguistics Jesus. He is basically linguistics Jesus. That's, yeah, that's pretty much sums it up. But he argued that language is innate. He says that you are born with the preformed building blocks of language all ready to go, and your brain is just waiting to hear some vocabulary and grammar to fill in those blanks. And there's actually quite a bit of evidence that this is mm-hmm. true. So, in the first months of your life, you can distinguish between all of the phonemes from all languages. And phonemes are itty-bitty little sounds that make up language. Yeah. It's um, the difference between O and O. Those yeah. are different phonemes. So, in early infancy, your brain begins pruning away your ability to distinguish between phonemes that are not used in your native language. For instance, Japanese babies can hear the difference between the L and the R sound, but they rapidly lose this is, this ability because Japanese doesn't view these as two distinct sounds. Uh, you, you get something similar between the, the V and the B in Spanish. Yeah, Japanese has a sound that's halfway between L and R. For instance, the, the, word, the Japanese word for apple is Ringo. And that's not Ringo or Lingo. It's Ringo. It's it's in between. Yeah, it's and a lot of English speakers um, struggle with the sound because they don't they're not used to it. But a lot of yeah. Japanese people struggle to hear L and R is different because they've never had to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you start looking down on Japanese people, there are a lot of phonemes that your English speaking brain can't hear, like the difference between U and U. Yeah, or this one's fun. The P sounds in the word pit and spit are different. So if you hold up your hand to your mouth, I mean, if you're driving, don't do this, but if you aren't driving, do it. When you say pit, you breathe a puff of air into your hand, and when you say spit, you don't, because they are two different P sounds. You you won't hear a difference if you're a monolingual English speaker, but uh, most people who speak Asian languages will hear those as two completely different sounds. Um, there's also a slight difference between the word yoke and yoke. Uh, yoke as in hit your ox to a cart, and yoke mm. as in yellow part. Oh yeah, mouth. also for awful and awful. Yes. Uh, organs versus terrible things, although, I mean... <laughs> hey, you got the order right. <laughs> There's a small difference. There's a small mm-hmm. difference that you can hear. Awful. awful. Yep. You can kind of pick them out as an English speaker if you're really paying attention, but people who speak other languages hear this very loud and clear. Because their brains are just hardwired to hear it better, thanks to their early experiences. Um, There's also the fact that children's language recesses during development before it gets better again. If you've never raised a child and watched a kid go through the process of learning language, it's fascinating. I mean, don't have a kid for the express purpose of watching them learn verbs. That's a terrible decision. That is wrong. Don't, Don't do it. Ethically questionable. Yeah, it's a terrible financial decision. Super, super young kids, when they're first learning, like, multi-sentence utterance, or multi-word sentences, uh, will correctly use past tense. So they will say things like, I ran fast, and their parents think they're tiny geniuses, and then they regress to saying, I runned fast, and their parents think that vaccines gave them autism. But your kids getting shittier at language is a product of your brain's natural grammar coming online. So when super, super mm. young kids say these things, it's because they have them memorized by rote. They have memorized I ran fast as a, a set phrase. But when their grammar, their ability to understand grammar comes online, 
They use they use it as a regular because they're misapplying misapplying a rule without yes. knowing the exceptions. Yes, they now know rules. They're, this is no yeah. longer them just parroting. They're just they're actually thinking for themselves. They're not repeating. They're forming their own sentences. Yep. So they're getting better at language, but it will appear that they're getting worse. So you know, if you ever need to comfort a parent who thinks that their child is suddenly brain damaged, uh, you can tell them that kids 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 get worse before they get better. Chomsky figured out that we're hardwired to learn language, but he assumed that if you weren't exposed to any language, your natural inclination to form language would take over and that you'd make up your own. Mm. He also he also subscribed to this idea that if you don't have any language input, you'll make it up. Oh yeah, the two the two kids in a shed theory. Yeah, and he definitely did not think this was an ability that you would lose as you get older. He didn't realize that this might have a critical period. Psychologists have a weird obsession with raising a human infant to adulthood in complete and total isolation just to see what would happen. In psychology, this is literally called the forbidden experiment. <laughs> yeah. And, uh... That's the first no-no. If you can't but figure out... But it's so tempting. It's like, a, it's like the Tide Pod of psych- like psychology. Oh. It's the forbidden snack. Oh my god. I need to sit down after that joke. Oh my god. <laughs> yes. Uh, also, if you can't figure out why you're not allowed to do this, uh, you should turn yourself in, because the authorities yeah. are almost definitely looking for you. Yeah, it, it is, this is, this will not be the first time that 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 you have crossed a line. So when Janie came to light, they kind of leaped on her as like the most perfect example of the forbidden experiment they'd ever seen. And what feral children like Victor and Janie have taught us is that there is a critical period for learning a first language. This is a use it or lose it process, and if you don't acquire a first language before that window closes, it slams shut, and you will never acquire a first language. As long as you've acquired a first language, you can acquire others. It's harder after mm-hmm. it's harder after puberty, but it's um it's perfectly possible. But you yeah. need to have that first language. Once your brain has adapted to the grammar of one language and has an understanding of language, it can learn other grammars. So Jeannie and Victor both made rapid progress for a while, and basically with learning the names of things and learning how to base- follow basic commands, and then they both hit a wall that they just were never able mm-hmm. to get over. And even though they could expand their vocabularies as you know as much as they wanted. Neither of them could ever make that leap to an understanding of grammar. They could string words together to communicate meaning, but they could never apply any kind of structure. So instead of, we should go buy apples at the store, Jeannie would say, store apples go, which, I mean, you, you, get, Close what, enough. you get what she's driving at, but that's she's not going to win a Pulitzer anytime soon. We don't know what time the critical period ends either, because again monstrously unethical to test that one forbidden super super no we think that it's somewhere between age five and puberty uh victor and Jeannie were both discovered at about the same age which is not super helpful Mm um we do know differentiate what the contradiction is there we do know that puberty is the cutoff where learning a second language becomes more difficult so it's hard to say and it's possible that this this critical period ends gradually, where you can still pick up a language towards the end of it, but you will mm-hmm. never be very good at it. But I mean, the thing about feral children is that there's actually a much, much better sample that we could have been working with this entire time, and that we are currently working with to discover the limits of the critical period, and that is deaf babies. Deaf that babies makes way more sense. Makes so much more sense to study than feral children. Yeah. Children who are born People have deaf, deaf babies all the time. And they get very little language exposure, at least back in the day. Exactly. Children who are born deaf are not always identified right away. Sometimes they just think you got a really lethargic baby. Yeah. Um, 
Children Sometimes you gotta you gotta clap behind their heads for a little while before you can figure out whether or not they're just ignoring you. Yeah, children who are born deaf, who are identified right at birth, have much better grasps of grammar than children who are born deaf and go years without being identified. But in in the human brain, sign language is treated the same as verbal language. It uses the exact, not the exact mm-hmm. same neural circuits, but roughly the same neural Very circuits. Very similar. Yeah, if if you uh, pick up sign language and then you later transition to a spoken language, you'll do just fine. Your brain is hungry for literally anything that resembles a language system, and it will glom on to- Just slot anything in there. Anything. Which makes sense. I mean, we've talked about this. It's, it's a use-it-or-lose-it system. This is also why deaf people who have cochlear implants don't have- I mean, it's, it's one of several reasons why deaf people with cochlear implants who get them as adults um, don't adapt very well. Mm-hmm. If if you are born deaf, you need to receive a cochlear implant before you turn five, or your brain mm. will not be able to integrate the audio signal. If you are an adult getting a cochlear implant, you need to have had hearing, you need to have been born with full hearing. Mm. Because otherwise, the sounds that are going to come into your brain will not mean anything to you. No, they will make sense. You're just, you're just taking some like atrophied nerves and just like putting an electric shock through them. And uh, you don't That's not going to tell you anything. You don't know what language is supposed to sound like. Yeah, it's not it's just calibrated. noise to you. The fact that you know how to read if you're deaf um and you've only ever seen the word brain as a written word or a sign language, hearing it out loud suddenly for the first time at age 27, you're going to have no idea what that connects to. No, it's incoherent. Yeah. Incidentally, this is why Helen Keller went to Harvard and not to a group home. Uh, so Keller was almost two years old when she lost her hearing and sight, and she'd already begun to be- pick up the basics of language, just like Jeannie. But the difference is that even when she was uh, deaf and blind, Helen Keller was encouraged to communicate with her family using sign language. She invented around 60 home signs before Anne mm. Sullivan ever came into her life. And Anne Sullivan began teaching Keller when she was seven years old. So Keller never went without language input, and she got that breakthrough Probably still well within the use it or lose it critical period. Mm-hmm. So Keller actually had the opposite problem that Jeannie did. Keller understood the basics of grammar for most of her childhood, but she struggled in the beginning because she didn't realize that there was a unique name for everything in her surroundings. She had grammar, but mm-hmm. not vocabulary. That was easy to fix. Jeannie had vocabulary, but she didn't have grammar. That's not fixable. There's, there's a really interesting case right now that's being studied in terms of critical period, it's actually a woman who was born deaf in a very rural area where nobody speaks any sign language. She was not taught sign until her early 30s. So mm. she had no real exposure to language until her 30s. And what they're finding is that even though she grew up in a loving, nurturing home where she was never abused and never malnourished, she has the same deficits that Jeannie had. Hmm. She is not able to pick up grammar. It's It's just done. She can't. She can pick up vocabulary, but she can't add structure to things. I mean, instead of dealing with incredibly abused children this entire time, we probably should have just looked to the deaf community. See, and that that feels so obvious. Yeah, they're a better sample in literally every way. They have no confounding variables because we know where they're from. They have loving homes and they're not We know who they are. They don't have other disabilities for the most part. Most of them are just congenitally deaf. It eliminates most of the problems with the you know, a rise in feral child research, and they also are socialized. And there's just way more of yep. them. 
Yeah, yeah, it makes it makes way more sense. But linguists only became interested in sign language very recently, so it, it's kind of ironic because people are trying to constantly trying to like stop deaf people from using sign language because like they wanted them to focus instead on you know like lip reading, verbal language acquisition. But like, no, actually, like it's actually more important for them to learn grammar first, and that would actually have helped them. Yeah, so Jeannie and Victor are kind of. They're the ones who introduced us the idea of a critical period, but all research going forward on language acquisition will probably happen with deaf children because, holy shit, it's less effort mm-hmm. than trying to rehabilitate a 59-pound, 13-and-a-half-year-old. Little less complicated. Yeah, way less complicated. And I mean, other than that, the other big thing that we learned from Jeannie and Victor that we have not been able to replicate is the fact that uh, temperature has a mm. social element to it. Both of them struggled to distinguish temperature and were impervious to cold. They would both go out in the snow with minimal clothing on. Victor liked to reach into fires to grab potatoes. No oh, issues. Well, wow. It's weird that they would have that in common because Victor grew up in the woods and Jeannie grew up mm-hmm. indoors. But yeah, so that um, that's the story of Jeannie Wiley. That's from beginning to end. That's who she was, where she came from, and what happened to her, and what we learned from her, and... I mean, we did learn some interesting things. It's unfortunate that it came at the expense of a very abused child, and it came at the expense of possibly getting her into a stable home from the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say where she might have ended up if she hadn't been passed around like a hot potato and flung back into the system. Snatch it out of the fire like you're a peat, unaware, feral child, and then thrown back in like you like to just yeet everything because that's like the... F- true feeling of autonomy is just yeeting a potato back into the flames. I am going to come to regret the fact that you learned the word yeet. You you already regret the fact that I learned the word yeet. Deeply. Deeply I yeeted I yeeted your belief in mankind off of the balcony a long time ago. And you yoinked away the last of my faith in humanity. <laughs> Someone pointed out to me that yeet and yoink are opposite words, and now I can't. Language is fascinating. That's the whole point of this podcast. Language is absolutely fascinating. Language is absolutely fascinating. But in any case, that has been our show this week. Um, I have been Janelle. I have been Jessica. And we are fat, fat, French, and and fabulous. And we hope you survived a three-hour special on child abuse. Hey everybody, thank you for coming back to another episode of Frat, French, and Fabulous. We hope that you join us again next week for a very fun episode on methamphetamine use in World War II. If you enjoyed the show, please recommend us to a friend. Uh, Please subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. And we'll see you again. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains in the sound of silence.